37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. On September 12, 1880, citizens and visitors both at New York's Coney Island were witness to a sight that would leave the viewers both perplexed and terrified. Intermingled with the sound of the carousels and the laughter of the people meandering down the boardwalk was the bizarre noise of large wings flapping that began to cut through the amusement park's ambiance. Once the tourists and New York natives began to notice the noise, they all began to fix their gaze upon the sky above them, where they saw the source of the noise. It looked like a man with wings flying across the sky, nearly 1,000 feet off the ground. Soon, the anomalous aerial creature lowered down from the clouds, and onlookers would get a better look at the monster and they would describe the beast as having bat wings and frog-like legs and a gnarled, wrinkled-up face of a demon featuring a cruel and determined expression. Before they got too good of a look, though, the monster descended from the heavens and began to swoop down over the curious folks, causing a mass pandemonium to arise. After a few moments of terror, the bemused flying creature then returned to the clouds and disappeared in the horizon, flying towards the New Jersey coast. Welcome back to part two of our flying humanoid investigation. Kaka tookie tookie. <laughs> All right. Welcome back, everybody, into our journey into the bizarre subject of flying humanoids. Now, we got the news out of the way last time, and this is the second half of what was supposed to be a two-parter back-to-back. So, presto, what say you? We skip the news and the how-do-you-do's and get right back into our tales of airborne terror. Sounds good to me. Sweet. All right, continuing on. In a book written in 1947 by a Russian writer by the name of V.K. Arzniev, he tells a story of an experience he had on July 11th in 1908 in the Sikhone Mountains near Vladivostok in the near eastern region of what would later be called the USSR. He said the rain had stopped and the temperature of the air remained low and the mist appeared over the water. It was then that he saw a mark on the path that was very similar to a man's footprint. He said his dog Alpha bristled up, raised his haunches, and began to snarl at something rustling around and trampling among the nearby bush. However, it didn't go away, but simply continued stomping and then suddenly stood still. He said they both began standing like that for minutes. Then he bent down, picked up a stone, and tossed it towards the unknown animal in the bushes. Then something happened that was quite unexpected. He began to hear the sound of wings. Something large and dark then emerged from the fog and flew over the river. Then a moment later, 
After it disappeared into the dense mist, his dog began to shake and, badly frightened, began to press himself to his feet. After supper, he would go on to tell the Udihi men about the incident, and they broke into vivid stories, telling the story about a man who could fly into the air. Hunters would often see his tracks, tracks that would appear suddenly and then vanish just as quickly, in such a way they could only be possible if the man alighted off the ground and took flight into the air. Now again later on one night, 1952, U.S. Air Force Private Sinclair Taylor, on guard duty at Camp Okubo, Kyoto in Japan, said he heard loud flapping noises. Looking up, he saw an enormous bird in the moonlight. When it approached, he got frightened, and he put a round into the chamber of his carbine. This bird then stopped its flight and was hovering not far away, staring at the soldier. He said the thing now had started slowly to descend again, and it had the body of a man. He said it was well over seven feet tall, and its wingspan was almost equal to its height. He said he began to fire and emptied his carbine, and then the thing hit the ground. But he said when he looked up to see if his bullets had found the home, there was nothing there. When the sergeant of the guard came to investigate after hearing the story, he told Taylor he believed him because a year earlier another guard had seen the same thing. Another soldier's tale of a flying humanoid would come from a man named Earl Morrison, who served with the 1st Marine Division in Vietnam. While stationed near Da Nang in August of 1969, he and two other guards reportedly saw an extraordinary sight just after 1 o'clock in the morning. They were sitting atop a bunker and talking when they noticed something approaching them from the sky. Morris would go on to say, We saw what looked like wings, like a bat's, only it was gigantic compared to what a regular bat would be. After it got close enough so we could see what it was, it looked like a woman, a naked woman. She was black, her skin was black, her body was black, and the wings were black, everything black. But it had a strange glow. It glowed in the night, kind of greenish. She started going over us, and we still couldn't hear anything. She was right above us, and when she got over the top of our heads, she was maybe six or seven feet up. We watched her go straight over the top of us, and still she didn't make a single noise while flapping her wings. Eventually she blotted out the moon, and once that's how close she was to us. And the dark looked like pitch black then, but we could still define her because she just glowed real bright like and she started going past us, straight towards the encampment. As we watched her, she had gone about ten feet or so away from us, and then we started hearing her wings flap. It sounded, you know, like regular wings flapping, and then she just started flying off, and we watched her for quite a while. Morrison thought the covering on her skin was more like fur than feathers, the skin of her wings looked like it was molded to her hands, he also said. 
and the movement in her arms suggested they had no bones. That sounds a lot like the Ahul. Yeah, we actually uh, covered a uh, this this story back when we did the Ahul. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. You know, we've done quite a few interesting stories about that. We've talked about the Thunderbirds back on a Krypton encounter. And, of course, our maybe the most famous story from Vietnam we covered back on episode 131, The Man Who Blew Up Bigfoot. Fuck yeah. The harring tale of Big John Wiener and the Rock Apes. Well, our next story comes again from Singular 14 Society. In November 2016, my son and I had been duck hunting from blinds near Upper Mississippi in the waterfowl area, not too far from West Alton, Missouri. It was about 5.15 in the evening and we were walking back to my truck. I had parked in a small lot off of the Harbor Road, Harbor Point Road, and we had walked about 500 yards. As we walked along the road, my son noticed a huge black thing descending towards the water's edge. I had never seen anything that large flying anywhere. It definitely was not a bald eagle or a crane. And as it got closer, we both were shocked when we realized it looked like it was human. But it wasn't flapping its wings, just gliding on a slow downward angle. It was about 50 yards from us, but there was enough light that we could clearly see it. The wings were outstretched and were very wide. The wing shape was similar to that of a bat, but huge. Its color was dark, almost black, and the body was tapered like a well-built man with long legs. The head was small compared to the body, so I definitely knew it was not human. We were both caught off guard and mesmerized by what we were seeing. It landed in the thick weeds by the water and then was obscured from our sight. At that point, we just wanted to get out of there because we had no idea what this thing was. As quickly as we walked along the road, we saw this thing crawling out of the weeds into a small clearing. It was literally pushing itself forward on the ground with its legs and the wings in the direction of the water. We could hear the sound it was making as it crawled on the damp ground and the mud. It didn't look like it was struggling, but it was an awkward way to move around. Though it had legs, I couldn't make out what we think were its feet. I assumed this was the way it actually moved on the ground. It slid into the water and then raised up a few times, like swimmers doing the breaststroke. Then it simply disappeared into the murky water. My son will no longer go back to that location anymore, but I'd really like to know what we saw. I told a co-worker who was into duck hunting like myself. He seemed interested at the time, but I'm sure he doesn't believe me. I'd never heard anything similar to this thing, either around here or anywhere else. Mmm, that sounds kind of interesting. Ugh. Yeah. Now, back on old episode 148, Cryptid Encounters Part 14, where we talked about the Thunderbirds, 
We also talked about the likelihood of these sightings being nothing more than just modern-day pterodactyls that have somehow survived millions of years. Well, just like the Thunderbird hypothesis, these prehistoric flying lizards may simply be to blame for some of these modern sightings of flying humanoids. So Presto, what do you got for us on more modern-day pterodactyl sightings? Yep. With that being said, let's take a look at a pterosaur story reported in the Atlanta Constitution of February 11th, 1895. <laughs> well, it was about 8 o'clock in the morning, and I was standing there with my gun behind some trees, and about 100 yards out from the outside waiting to get a shot, if possible, at a passing deer. Suddenly, I heard a noise in towards the river that made the hair stand on end. It was a loud noise, nor did it sound very dangerous, but it was peculiar, let me tell you. I had never heard anything like it before, and I hope i never hear it again. It, it was a sound somewhat like a, the quacking of a duck and the hissing of a snake combined. Now, this is interesting because as a duck whisperer myself and, you know, duck daddy, <laughs> um, male ducks, uh, they don't actually kind of like quack. They make more of a like a wah wah, but uh, they also sound like a, a bullfrog. And uh, so, you know, as of right now in this story, it really sounds like whatever it is, is of the male persuasion. But let's get back mm. to the story. That is as near as I can describe it, and yet that does not give any idea of how it really sounded. It was stronger and louder than either, and yet the impression that it gave me is either I was about to see a monstrous duck or just a huge fucking snake, and then I thought it must be both. The sound seemed to emanate from a thick place surrounding a kind of lagoon. I kept my eyes fixed on the spot with a cocked gun in my hand. Bang, bang, motherfucker. I had not long to wait because in a few seconds I heard a kind of splashing in the water and appearing through the bushes. I saw about a hundred yards away what seemed to be the head of an enormous duck. But I thought surely it was the king of all ducks for the bill was at least a foot long and as black as could be. It was still making that blood-curdling, half-hissing, half-quacking noise and seemed to be waddling or maybe swimming slowly along in the mud and water. Now, before I had time to think, and even if my brain had been in any condition to work as such, that creature raised itself up a little, and I saw the blackest, ugliest, most lonesome-looking animal I've ever inhabited this earth. God damn, it was ugly. Its body was between three and four feet long, and it was black. And when I first caught a glimpse of it, I thought I must have been mistaken. You know, because it was like an alligator coming out of the sun, and yet I'd never seen an alligator like that before. Coming up near to where I crouched in terror behind a tree, I soon had the opportunity to see the thing in all of its strangeness and ugliness. There was a little knoll where the puddle of water ended and the Horror burrows. <clears throat> what I thought was an alligator stepped up on this little elevation. And then I saw it only had two feet. As near as I could judge, its legs were about a foot and a half long, and it stood there like some huge blackbird in the night, 
with his bill stuck down, word and still emitting that unearthly kind of noise. To say that I was paralyzed with fear would hardly give you the idea of my condition. If the creature had seen me and stared at me in my direction, I am sure I'd piss myself. It never occurred to me that my gun would have been any type of protection. I was so completely terrified by the appearance of the unnatural looking thing that I couldn't think of anything else. I believe I'd rather have braved a thousand alligators than that bird, or beast, or whatever you might call it. It stood there, I suppose, about a minute, and I had a good opportunity to examine it with my eyes. Its body was tough and scaly like an alligator, with, the, and the tail went off to a point. It had legs like a turkey or maybe a duck, only they were larger and stronger. Its feet, what I could see on the account of some bushes, it kept turning its bill up and down and around, but try as I could, I never did locate its eyes. They were the, the features I was right then most interested in not seeing, and I suppose they were so black that <laughs> at the distance I could not make them out. I could never describe the awful sound the thing made with its mouth. It made my blood run colder every time I heard it, and after a short while... That seemed an age, the creature gave some kind of spring from the ground, and before I could realize what it was doing, it went up into a large tree and sat on the lowest limb. As it did so, I could hardly believe my eyes. When I saw two dark wings spread out from its side and strike with the air with a heavy sound that made my heart sick. I had not noticed before that it had wings, but wings they certainly were. Although I could not see feathers... And as soon as it had poised itself up on the limb, its wings were drawn so closely to its body that it was impossible to check where they were. I looked at it for a second or two, and then at, it, at its back was towards me. I thought it was a favorable opportunity to get the hell out of there, as I was <laughs> hungry anyhow. I stuck quietly out and never took a long breath until I'd left the swamp. So the uh, the book that that it was from, uh, the author goes on to say that uh, though it seems like a routine routine sighting, he has some issues with it. For starters, the uh, witness is a you know suspiciously good writer, so good I think the witness was really just a newspaper writer cooking up a, a good yarn. To his credit, the beast wasn't magnified to proportions so great that it knocked it out of the realm of credibility. This was a uh, this was the case of the 1890 Tombstone Thunderbird story that we talked about, in which mm -hmm. the alleged petrosaur measured over 90 feet long, when the biggest member of the pterodactyl family could only reach 30 feet. So the size of the animal was about right for a pterodactyl, which only had a three foot uh, wingspan. That the witness described the creature as scaly hurts the credibility, though. Most pterodactyls are thought to have uh, sported coats of fur, uh, like filaments known as psychofibers, not scales. Uh, mm -hmm. The story also came on the heels of two other well-known publicized pterosaur stories. Now, uh, you know, when this book was read, or when this when this book was written, um, you know, they we hadn't discovered the Chinese pterosaur. And earlier mm -hmm. this year, they actually found the petrified remains of a, uh, 
of a new pterosaur creature. And uh, it's in the, the region that it lived in in China millions of years ago. Um, the, hmm. the fossil remains would indicate that it did not have feathers, that it actually did have scales. And um, it, it had a huge beak. And it, it actually, the, the, the fossil remains matched the description of the story that was written in whatever I said, 1895. So, on one side of the coin, this story could be total bullshit, or this, you know, <laughs> dumb redneck um, actually saw a fucking Chinese dragon. That's that's interesting. How close is France to China? Um, I I mean, closer than we are. It's closer at the half. We are okay. Let's, let's say it's the halfway point. <laughs> okay, uh, fair enough. We're not scientists. Yeah. Well, the reason why I ask is in the book Strange Creatures from Time and Space by John Keel, there was a story that took place like 40 or 50 years before this story that took place in France. It says the best description of a pterodactyl appears in the Illustrated London News from February 9th, 1856. A discovery of great scientific importance has just been made at the Colmont Hot Marne. Some men employed in cutting a tunnel to unite the St. Dizier and the Nancy Railways had just thrown down an enormous block of stone by means of gunpowder and were in the act of breaking it into pieces when from the cavity they suddenly saw emerge a living being of monstrous form. The creature which belongs to the class of animals hitherto considered to be extinct has a very long neck and a mouth filled with sharp teeth. It stands on four long legs, which are united together by two membranes doubtless intended to support the animal in air. And it's armed with four claws terminated by long crooked talons. Its general form resembles that of a bat differing only in its size, which is that of a large goose. The membranous wings, which spread out, measuring from tip to tip, 3 meters and 22 centimeters long, which is nearly 10 feet 7 inches, its color is a livid black. Its skin is naked, thick, and oily. Its intestines only contained a colorless liquid like clear water. On reaching the light, this monster gave some signs of life by shaking its wings, but then soon after expired, uttering a hoarse cry. The strange creature, to which may be given the name of a living fossil, has been brought to the gray, where a naturalist, well-versed in the study of paleontology, immediately recognized it as belonging to the genus Pterodactyl anas, or anus, Many fossils remain, of which have been found among the strata which geologists have designated by the name Leus. The rock which the monster was discovered belongs precisely to that formation of deposit, which is so old that geologists date it back to more than one million years ago. The cavity which the animal was lodged from is the exact hollow mold of its body which indicates that there is a completely enveloped creature within the sedimentary deposit. 
So, I mean, you talk about goofy, crazy rednecks seeing pterodactyls, that's one thing, but I think if you've got a bunch of French geologists, well, French geologists and also people, you know, blasting their way through, um, you know, a, a mountainside trying to build a tunnel. Yeah. That's a different type of credibility, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know. Kind of bizarre. Well, to round things off, pterodactyls are fine, Preston, and flying naked ladies are great. But what about the really weird shit? Ooh, lay See, it on you me. Start research. <laughs> so you start researching these things, and oftentimes you go on these weird twists and turns and tangents. We call those rabbit holes. And you start to see some really bizarre stuff. Just some really, really interesting off-the-wall creatures that slowly kind of shake to the surface. So I really want to jump into a couple things that are supposedly plaguing the skies, not only in America, but across the world that stray far from just winged ladies of Vietnam or witches on broomsticks or pterodactyls. Are we, we're going to talk about your... naked pterodactyls? <laughs> we're going to talk about naked pterodactyls. You got it. Hmm. With their gonads a-shaking. Ooh. So according to both the Iroquois and the Wyandotte mythology, something more terrifying than pterodactyls are plaguing the skies, something they simply described as Flying heads. These ravenous spirits are said to be cursed with an insatiable hunger similar to the Wendigo. The physical appearance of these flying heads somewhat varies depending on the storyteller. However, it's generally described as resembling a human head with long, dark hair, terrible, angry eyes, and a mouth full of razor sharp fangs. In some cases, the flying heads were witnessed to have a pair of bat wings jutting from each side of its cheeks and bird-like talons from its chin. Other versions replaced the bat wings with those of a bird, but in all instances, they're described as being larger in size than that of the tallest man and possessing a skin-like hide which no weapon could penetrate. According to the folklore... The flying head drove the original native inhabitants who lived in the area of the state of New York, near the source of the Hudson River, into the Adirondack Mountains, away from their normal hunting grounds, before the Europeans were to arrive. In the early 19th century, a Mohawk guide in the town of Lake Pleasant, New York, who called himself Captain Gill, claimed it was Lake Sacandango, where the legend took place. This tribe had their village on a hill that is now located behind the Hamilton County building, and the name of the previous inhabitants unfortunately has been lost in history, but the legend of Flying Head ensured that every neighboring tribe steered clear of this area for many years. The Flying Head legend survives, but unfortunately again the name of the tribe who invented it is long gone. But the hill where the unknown tribe's village was located is considered now to be cursed. Three different hotels would be built on the sacred site, and all three would have short lifespans and would burn to the ground mysteriously. Captain Gill lived in a wigwam at the outlet of the lake on Lake Pleasant, and he had a wife named Molly, and Molly had a daughter named Molly Jr., who Captain Gill wouldn't claim as his own. But one story he would tell says there's once a very severe winter that killed off all the plants and fauna 
and drove the moose and deer into other locations not normally traveled. The local native hunters decided against following them, and unfortunately then the fishing they relied on would fail as well. And so according to the legend, the famine became so severe that whole families would begin to die of starvation. Young members of the community would begin to talk of migrating from the current area, but the migration would be very difficult because they were surrounded on all angles by very hostile neighboring tribes. So merely to shift their hunting ground for any season wasn't quite possible. So a small group proposed a secret march to the Great Lake off to the west. They believed once safely beyond the lake, it would be easier to find a new home and to find new food. But the old men of the tribe were opposed to leaving their homeland and said the journey was nothing but madness. They said, too, that the famine was a scourge for the master of life, which was inflicted upon his people for their crimes, and that if the punishment were endured, the punishment would pass. But if they ran from it, the results would follow them forever. And the old men went on to say they would rather perish by inches on their native hills, and they'd rather die that moment than leave their land forever to live with plenty upon strange lands. The legend goes on to say the young men were so enraged by the ignorance of the old men, they promptly killed their elders. After killing the elders, the question of disposal of the remains became a bit of a problem. According to the legend, the young men wished in some way to sanctify the deed by offering up the bodies to the master of life. So they agreed to decapitate the bodies, burn the bodies, and then gather the heads and sink them together at the bottom of the lake. One of the young chiefs who planned the crime mysteriously died when he became entangled in the ropes that bound the heads together before throwing them into the lake. The rest of the young men would gather the heads and throw them into the lake. Several days later, however, bubbles and slime began to appear across the top of the lake, which would herald a terrible monster. From the depths of the slime and the algae and the moss came a giant human-like head with bat-like wings attached to each side, which the tribe could apparently never escape. The legend states that the problems brought on by the flying head did not stop with the group alone, but the flying head would choose to terrify neighboring people as well, apparently for no reason at all. Many of the Iroquois were supposedly troubled by the flying head, which, when it rested upon the ground, was taller than the tallest man in their tribe. This supposed monster was coated in long black hair, with wings akin to a bat, and long, sharp talons. One evening after they had been plagued for a long time, the flying head would then come to the door of a lodge, occupied by one single female. She was sitting before a fire, roasting acorns, and as they became cooked, she'd pull them from the fire, blow on them, and then eat the roasted acorns. Now, curiously, the giant head watched a lady continue to do this, pull an acorn from the fire, blow on it, and stick it in her mouth. So the giant head saw this as a challenge. 
So bursting through the door, the giant head flew in and took a giant mouthful of the burning coals, mistaking them for acorns. The fiery hot coals burned the mouth of the giant head, causing the creature to flee into the darkness, screaming into the night, never to return again. The results, of course, were disastrous, and the flying head would flee in agony, never to be seen again. Now, looking into this a little bit more, presto, when we did our research into yokai, this reminded me of a bizarre, freaky little thing called the obuki, which I don't think we talked about in our yokai episode. Nope. The obuki will appear in Japanese yokai tales as an enormous severed head which flies through the sky. In most accounts, they are female in appearance and quite commonly have dark black teeth. The obuki are little threat to humans, but instead just cause them giant pains in the ass. Their most common activity is to fly around harassing people, smiling at them, blowing away their umbrellas, or otherwise just scaring them. According to many accounts, if an obuki breathes on any part of your body, that part of your body will become inflamed. But no other death or severe illness have been reported. Obuki are otherwise harmless and will disappear soon after their first sighting. They're thought to be sky spirits who protect the sky or people who died during national disasters. They're said to protect people from natural disasters and protect the sky from demonic sky spirits and fellow yokai. It's said that if one does not pay respect to the obuki, they will be turned into sky spirits themselves and their faces will appear in the sky immediately upon their death. But those who do pay respect are said to get good fortune and gifts. Huh. Yeah, which makes me think we really should probably do another episode on yokai. Yeah, there's a, a book that I want to get for a, a future episode that uh, mm -hmm. talks about um, basically like ancient Chinese scrolls that were uh, kind of like later translated. And um, they were translated in like the, the late 1800s. So about the time where um, you start to see like a lot of airship sightings and um, mm -hmm. kind of like that steampunk where like your your authors are writing books like it's a very futuristic type of stories and so kind of like where steampunk comes from it was kind of like that that era where you had people trying to make like um, autotoms uh, uh, you know like the oh um, like the the little robots, robots. Yeah, that yeah, would like yeah. that would like I don't know like pour a pour a cup of tea. So they had like the little cogwheels. You'd have these watchmakers that make these very intricate robots that can kind of do a task. And so when they translated these ancient Chinese texts, um, a lot of them were talking about like these flying severed heads. But when they were being translated in the late eighteen hundreds, uh, the people that were translating them thought like, holy shit, these actually sound like ancient accounts of robots. And uh, so that that's kind oh, of inter wow. interesting to me that you have all these different cultures uh, where if you go back and you look at it from, the, you know, the 
in modern day, if we were to translate them, we just think, oh, they're just fucking folktales, whatever. You know, this is all a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> but in the late right, right. In late 1800s, they were like, you know, deciphering like all these ancient texts and like, you know, the Greeks had robots, the Chinese had robots, like all these different yeah. lost texts. Like during that time period, like people were really convinced that we had like this lost advanced civilizations that had like these these robots and uh, it, it kind of puts a new spin on to the fact that, you know, are these folk tales of just, you know, the imagination to try and to explain an event or were they kind of left over from this advanced civilization? And then, the, you know, the ancient people were like, it was your fucking head that flew around and it ate coals. <laughs> like, I don't know. Could have been a robot. Right, right. Man. You know, robot sightings are pretty fascinating to me as well. Um, years ago, probably back in like 2004, 2005, there was a book that was being advertised in Men's Health magazine that was about modern-day robot encounters. And I'm wishing I could recall what the name of the story or the, the name of the book was because, you know, back then I thought, well, that's fucking stupid and uh, never paid it more attention. But there was a story excerpt it was in the men's health about more or less a guy driving his car one night. He lost control and he went over the edge of a cliff with no guardrail. And then, you know, he put his hands up in front of his face and braced for impact. Sure, he was about to die. And then he said next thing he remembers is feeling the car floating. He looked in the rear view and saw two bright lights. And he looked over on the sides of the car and there were two metal-like clamp hands on each side of the roof that busted out both his side windows, and he claims it was a robot that then put his car back on the highway and then disappeared into the trees. Very, very, very much like that Disney movie, man. Uh, what was that movie called? Um, Iron Giant. Yeah. So I'm going to see if I can find that book, because that would be a hell of a lot of fun yeah. to probably read sometimes. So I'll see if I can deep dive and find that on Amazon somewhere. So I think that'd be a shit ton of fun. Yeah. Well, before we go too far off course, guys, that was the tail end of our dive into flying humanoids. Now, barring that Steve can return next episode, I think we're going to blow the dust off late nights and get on to volume four. Because my search history is getting really bizarre, and so are the articles I'm saving on Facebook and other social media. So I really should probably get those out and purge all that, because I got some weird shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as a bonus surprise, we actually have a listener who is sending in his very own lawnmower erotica. Oh. Yeah, so I don't know what the fuck we're doing. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we've crossed a path we should have never crossed before. No, fuck but... it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good to me. Now, before we get out of here, guys, we would like to say, if you were on iTunes, why don't you please head on over and give us a rating and a review? And if you do, we will definitely read it on the next episode after you post it, much like this review. This comes from Hello Mello. Keep up the good work, boys. I love that y'all are so down to earth and have fun with what you do. I truly enjoy listening to this podcast. Oh, Aww. yeah. Well, 
Thanks. Hello, Mella. We are very appreciative that you listen. We're so stoked that you find it entertaining. And we'd love to hear from more people. Please send us yeah. a review on iTunes. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you want to hear. We're up to 111 subscribers on YouTube, which I never thought we'd get past, Ooh. you know, 50. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we're only like, you know, 89 away from 200. So maybe tell tell your wife, tell your kids, tell your niece, your nephews, your mom, your dad, <laughs> yeah, your friends, yeah. your fucking neighbor, your coworkers. We don't care. But tell them, go over to YouTube, like and subscribe, you know, get on iTunes like and subscribe spread the paranormal love baby yeah please definitely um we have a gentleman who wrote into us saying that he actually was a person who has experienced many psychic experiences growing up and would like to talk to our podcast as well sometimes so once steven gets settled in we'll have to reach out to him and have a chat we're going to find some time too to get together with our body uh our body we got to find some time to get together with our buddy Chris and talk about his experience out on Skinwalker Ranch. He sent mm-hmm. us in some stories, but we got to got to get together and have a chat with him one of these days and hear uh, the full stories. Cool. All right. Well, let's get out of here, shall we? Yeah. Guys, gals, ghouls, please check us out on the old Instagram PXL Paranormal. That's where the visual companions to all the episodes go. But they also go on Facebook. Check out the Facebook page. Give us a follow. The Pixelated Paranormal Podcast is the name of that page. Presto, what do you got for us? Listen, folks, you might be telling yourself, you know, my beard is not looking as good as I wanted to. Maybe it's not as thick and full as you want and... You know, you can't find any obuki nookie to get it inflamed and, you know, like big and bushy. <laughs> but that's okay. God. You don't need the obuki to get the beard you've always wanted. All you have to do is go over to BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA and get 20% off your order. You can get bombs. You can get, you know, brushes, soaps. You can even get beard oil. And let me tell you what. A little bit of Dundee cedar, some bay rum, some sweet tobacco, some fresh citrus, or classic, which is my all-time favorite. That's going to get that beard, like, up and going. Fuck the obuki. Just mm-hmm. go over and get yourself some Dobbs and just have the best <laughs> beard that you could possibly have. Shit, yeah, man. I fully agree. I support this message. <laughs> <laughs> I support this message. Hashtag fuck the Obuki. <laughs> well, there we go. Also, speaking of Big Dobbs, uh, Big Dobbs and Hillary went out to the Sally House and got some good stuff there. So we're anxious to hear back what they captured, some EVPs or some sightings and all that good stuff. So super stoked. Hell yeah. All right. If you're in the Wichita area, please stop by and see our friend Leslie and the gang down at CD Trade Post on Pawnee and Seneca. And on behalf of Steve, I'd like to say cheers to the weird shit in the world and to those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky. Stay on the paranormal highway, baby. The cast at Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. 
We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.